Yeah, this morning I have the joy of preaching from Job 28. So if you'd go ahead and turn there. Job 28, I think it is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, it's beautiful, profound. And we'll go ahead and begin by reading all 28 verses. By the way, this is Job speaking here in the book of Job. And he says this in Job 28, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's pray. Lord, this is the truth, and it says it so profoundly that we are all blind, ignorant, and lost. And we are so finite and small, Lord. We do not know wisdom. We are not able to find it on our own. For us to know the truth, Lord, to understand the world, to understand how we are to live, who you are, you must speak to us. And for your speech to us to not be in vain, Lord, we must have a humble heart and a fear of you. So please give that to us now as we hear from your word. Please give us hearts of humility and trust and faith that will allow us to hear your wisdom enclosed so beautifully here in Job 28. And indeed, Lord, as you give us wisdom, please also give us the fear of you. That is something that only you can give. And so please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's my personal theory that 
uh, there's really only one argument against the existence of God. And I, I think it's really the only reason that people don't believe in God. And you, if you ever listen to an atheist talk, uh, this will come out. You know, they'll give arguments about evolution and dinosaurs and apparent contradictions in the Bible, and you can hear them talk on and on about that. But then all of a sudden, their tone will shift as they begin to talk about the terrible thing that happened in their life or the suffering children around the globe. And you'll see with the passion in their voice that they don't really care about the apparent contradictions of the Bible. They don't really care about the fossil record. What they care about is that evil things happen to them all the time. And God seems to stand there silently. The supposed all-good and all-powerful God lets them suffer terribly. And that is what they cannot reconcile, and that is what makes them hate God. Not just not believe in Him, but uh, despise His supposed existence. And oftentimes, atheists, they, they bring this to us, this question of how could a good God allow evil like it's some kind of big gotcha, like we never thought about it before. No, in fact, everyone knows this question. I do believe this is the great question of life which everyone must answer. When an atheist says this, we don't dismiss it. No, we say that's the exact right question. And we, we're familiar with this question too. Even us who are believers, we ask the same thing when suffering comes to us. Yes, we we still believe in God, but we still are left dumbfounded. Why does God do the things he does? As Augustine said, everything is ordered by the providence of him who no one understands and yet no one can criticize. That's our God, and we are all, again, faced by this great question of life. How can a good, all-powerful God allow so much suffering and evil in the world? And again, this is not a question that is ignored or skirted by Christianity. Now, I believe that the book of Job, and I won't get into all the reasons now, but that the book of Job is the very first book of the Bible that was written. Uh, It seems that Job was about a contemporary of Abraham, and the book was likely written soon after uh, his experience here. So the book, that means, is likely written a few hundred years before Moses comes along and writes uh, the Pentateuch. And if that's the case, if Job is the first book of the Bible that is written, then what does that mean? That means that God opens up his written revelation to the world by taking this great question head on. And the, basically the ultimate address of this question, how can evil happen to innocent people? And God, he has this happen to Job, and then he writes about it in this ultimate way, that it's the most innocent man who has the very worst thing happen to him. And it comes directly at that question, which haunts us all. How does God operate in this world? Why is it the way it is? If everything were perfect and always worked out great, I don't think anybody would question God's existence. But that it's that our world seems so far away from his character that it makes people wonder who this God is and if he's there at all. If you'd go ahead and turn over to to Job chapter 1, I'm going to give a a little recap of Job 1 to 27. Because really, Job 28 is Job's conclusion about the first half of the book. It's his summary of the lessons of chapter 1 to 27. 
And the first thing that we learn in the book of Job is verse 1. It's very important. Put your eyes there. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. The important thing to note there is the two things that describe Job's righteous character is that he feared God and turned away from evil. So he's the best man in the world. He's the most righteous man and generous. And not only is he uh, great of heart, but he's a great man in general. He is incredibly wealthy. He has a large family. He is totally blessed. And one day, Job tells us, the book of Job tells us, the sons of God became, came before the Lord, and among them Satan came. And uh, the Lord told uh, Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? How he fears me and turns away from evil. And Satan, he throws out a suggestion. Satan says, I'll give you my perspective on this guy, Job. He says, Job, he doesn't really fear you. No, no, Job, Job sees you as his genie. I mean, look at him. You've given him everything he could ever want. You've blessed him. Yeah, Job worships you. Yeah, because he's entered into this awesome contract with you where he says some prayers and is nice to people, and then God Almighty gives him whatever he wants. Yeah, of course he likes you. You're his, uh, you're his supply chain. You're his benefactor. But it's, it's skin deep. He only cares about you for the stuff you give him. You took that away from him, and he cursed you. Job has a complete contractual agreement with you, God. He cares nothing actually for who you are. He's not actually good in his heart. Now, God disagrees, and so he allows Satan to go and test Job, to go and base ultimately demonstrate that Job's fear, that his righteousness is indeed all the way to the heart, that he does not fear God, uh, that he truly fears God, that he does not view him just as a genie. And so, indeed, Job loses everything. His children die. All his property is taken away. And Job says, uh, and there it says, though, in Job 1.20, Then Job arose and tore his robe, his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Here, Job has proved Satan wrong. He's proved him wrong. His integrity has remained intact. And of course, I need to make the note here that what we know about the drama up in heaven with Satan and God, it's dramatic irony. We, the reader, know about it, but Job does not. The characters down on earth, they don't know what happened up in heaven. And so the book of Job is set up through this, this dramatic irony that all throughout Job and his friends are going to wonder what's happening. And we know what's happening. We'd love to tell them this is why. We cannot. We're left speechless, and we're left to watch him squirm as he tries to figure out why this has happened to him. Satan comes back to God, and he says, uh, let, let's try it again. This time, let me actually hurt his body physically. God allows it, and uh, his health leaves him. And this is too much for his wife. Uh, look at Job 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife, uh, she, she follows the proposition of Satan. 
Her relationship with God is the one that Satan described. She was going to bless God as long as he blessed her. Now that he has cursed her, she is ready to curse God. But not Job. Job's integrity remains. And after his wife leaves, these three friends come to him. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And if you look at verse 11, it says that they came for two reasons to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, that's the reason that his friends came to him. It's not the reason they stay, though. Um, There's an unfortunate portrait of Job's three friends as uh, the most obtuse, emotionally retarded jerks in history. And uh, a lot of the common thought is that the reason you've got, you know, 30 chapters with these dudes is so that you would learn that if someone ever has something bad happen to them, don't be an obtuse, emotionally retarded moron. Instead, uh, you know, be nice to the person. Uh, If you say something and it obviously hurts their feelings, don't just keep pushing the wound. That's not a very good explanation of why Job's friends are there. We don't need 30 chapters of them being morons to realize ourselves, oh, I shouldn't be a moron like that. You could figure that one out on your own. That's not why Job's friends stay there. That's not why they keep talking to Job. They came to show him sympathy, but when they saw Job and they saw his complete misery, it made them afraid. It put a profound, nagging question in their heart. Namely, how do I know this isn't going to happen to me? Job was the best person we knew. And here he is, put in hell, basically. What did he do wrong? I need to figure out what he did so that it doesn't happen to me. And this is something that all of us have experienced before, is it not? We see something on the news, something terrible happens to someone that's rather like us, and it disturbs us. Oh, how do I know someone's not going to do that to me? How do I know it's not going to happen to my child? There's a story I heard Uh, one time that a guy, he worked uh, for a mortician, and his job was that he had to go to to the sites where people's corpses had been found, and he had the unsavory job of cleaning up the site. And he said that what would happen whenever he'd go to these sites and learn about the thousands of different ways that people can die, that he'd have this ongoing argument in his head trying to convince himself of why, of course, he would never die like that. He, he didn't have that lifestyle. He didn't do that thing. He's smarter than that. And he'd go on and on. Every time he'd see one of these, he'd convince himself, oh, of course, this would never happen to you. And then one day after months of this, he'd realize, no one thought this was going to happen to them. No one anticipated they were going to die like this. But all of us are exposed to thousands of dangers every day, and one day one of them is going <laughs> to kill me. Uh, as, as Herman Melville put it, all are born with halters round their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. That's Job's friends. They were comfortable with the way they were living until their partner, Job, falls into absolute misery. And now Job's friends have to figure out how not to be like Job. And in order for them to figure out how not to be like Job, they need to figure out what Job did wrong. Job's friends, they're pretty certain about one thing. 
they're nearly certain that the reason this happened to Job is because somehow, in some way, he deserved it. He did something wrong. They're, they're pretty certain about that. And so their whole line of questioning is going to be, okay, we know Job did something wrong, and what we need is to suggest it to him such that he will finally be convicted and he'll finally say, you know what, you're right. I now see I did do that wrong thing. I get it now why God did this to me. And his friends would go, okay, so we won't do that thing. We're good. Sorry, buddy. But that's what they need. They're not so convinced. And if they were completely convinced that this was the case, you know, they would just say at one time, you know, Job, God only does this to bad people. And even if Job said, no, I'm, I'm totally blameless, they'd say, sure, buddy. If they're totally convinced, they'd move on. Someone who's totally convinced in that peace isn't going to keep harassing the man for three cycles each time and keep arguing vehemently, eventually insulting the man. That does not come from certainty. That comes from uncertainty. They need Job to figure out what he's done wrong. And so that then is the book of Job, the vast majority of it, from chapters 3 to chapter 26, basically. Eliphaz uh, gives three accusations, basically, and Job dismisses them three times. Bildad, he gives three accusations, and Job uh, dismisses them three times. Zophar, he only gives two uh, accusations. It seems that by the time it came up for his turn to give a third one, he said, yeah, I got nothing else. That's the cycle. And the whole time, Job's friends, they're trying to answer their question, what did Job do wrong that deserved this terrible punishment? And Job, he knows that he didn't do anything wrong. That's his problem. He knows that he has complete integrity as much as a man can. Now, he doesn't think he's perfect. He knows that if he's put up in a lawsuit against God, God will figure out some flaw. He knows that. He knows he's a mortal man. But he does not know in his head anything that he's done wrong. That's how total his integrity is. And so they go round and round, Job's friends trying to figure out what evil Job did, and Job, at an even deeper level, trying to understand how does God operate in the world? How can he do this? And is there any recourse for man under the omnipotence and sovereign control of God, which often is painful? If you go back to Job 28 then, Job 28 is Job's conclusions then. After all these rounds of questioning, of seeking for an answer to explain why God has done what he has done, and always coming up void, always coming up empty, Job 28 is Job's conclusion. This beautiful poem, basically. And he starts out with kind of some misdirection. It's kind of out of the blue. Job just starts talking about these minds, all right? And I'm going to call uh, verses 1 to 11 of Job 28 as a discussion of the power of man. Taking notes, you could write down verses 1 to 11, the power of man. Job says that in the search for gold, for wealth, Man has displayed incredible ingenuity, incredible power, incredible ability. It says in the the search for wealth, for gold, for precious jewels, 
man's figured out a way to go into the bowels of the earth. Under the dirt where there is deep darkness, verse 3, man has searched out the farthest limit. And gloom and deep darkness, man, by their skill and uh, intelligence, has figured out a way to delve into the deep and find the precious jewels of the earth. And the faraway lands, underneath where the bread grows, men are swinging from the roofs of caves, looking for jewels and gold. And this speaks to uh, a part of man being in God's image. That man has so much ability that he can tunnel into the depths of the earth to find what he looks for. Verse 7, that path no bird of prey knows. Verse 9, the proud beasts have not trodden on it. Man transcends the bird, the lion. They cannot do what man can, searching out jewels from under the earth. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock, and he overturns mountains by the roots. That's the extent of man's power. Flips over mountains in their pursuit of wealth. And the hidden thing he brings out to light. Job says, look at the ability of man. A man comes around and he says, I want wealth. And I've got the ability, the skill, and the work ethic to do it. What do I need to do? A man says, this is the place. You burrow underground and you can find the wealth you're looking for. And indeed, man has found that wealth. But then the great contrast comes in verse 12 We know where jewels can be found. We've gone to the farthest limits of the earth to find gold and wealth. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Yeah, okay, sure, we know how to do all this stuff. We've used all of our ability and effort to find these precious jewels and gold. But does anyone have a clue where to get wisdom? No, we don't. That's what Job and his friends have demonstrated thus far. Going round and round, Job is desperate for an answer, for some kind of explanation of why the things that have happened to him have happened to him. How does this world work? How can I do everything right and yet just lose everything in a moment like that? Can anyone give me a hint of an answer? Nope. You're telling me if I need jewels, you can tell me what to do, but when it comes to understand my life, what I should do, No one has any idea. That's verses 12 to 22. This is a discussion of the mystery of wisdom. The mystery of wisdom. Wisdom is more valuable than all the wealth in the whole world, and yet no one doesn't have a clue of how to get it. With all the power and ingenuity of man from ancient times, mining under the earth to today with our ability to go to the moon and explore the farthest reaches of space, we've done all this, but is anyone able yet on their own to explain how the world works, why God does the things he does? Can anyone tell you by their own ingenuity how you ought to live your life? Nope. It's a bunch of guesses. We do not know. We do not know the place of wisdom. Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. You look all over the world, and you can't find it. It cannot be bought for gold. You can never accumulate enough wealth to eventually transfer that over to an accumulation of wisdom. Not going to happen. It is hidden, verse 21, from the eyes of all living. 
and verse 22, it's a great conclusion. If you went all the way down to Sheol, to Hades, and you asked the people down there, hey, does anyone know where wisdom is? All they'd say is, wisdom? Oh, yeah, we've heard of it. Do you know where it is? No, we don't. No one knows the place of wisdom. And of course here, uh, the, the question is, well, or a good place to stop, is to ask the question, what is wisdom? Wisdom is a word uh, used a lot in Scripture, and sometimes, though, it can be hard to define. And I actually think that the book of Job, what we've discussed, is actually the best way of determining what wisdom is. Because wisdom is that thing that Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are searching for, but they can't find. You can look through Job 1 to 27, and you can make an outline of the missing information. That outline, that's what wisdom is. And that's what we're missing. And in considering what Job and his friends have been looking for, you can make a couple conclusions. One is that wisdom is most directly a practical question. That's most directly what Job and his friends are asking. What did you do that this terrible thing happened? Uh, Or to put it a different way, what do I need to not do in order for this not to happen to me? That's the most basic question. And so it's practical in that sense. It's ethical in that sense. But the answer to that ethical, uh, pragmatic question will only come by having a cosmic uh, philosophy and theology that can account for how the world works and how God works in the world. So you can see then the breadth of wisdom. Yes, it does answer even directly practical questions. What should you do at any given moment? But to answer those questions, you have to answer the great big questions of theology and philosophy. Wisdom encapsulates all of that. Uh, My definition of wisdom would be this. Wisdom is a correct understanding of the world that results in correct action. Wisdom is a correct understanding of the world that results in correct action. I think it would be helpful here to make a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And now when I say I'm going to make a distinction between knowledge and wisdom, I'm not saying that this is you know, two categories that the Bible always follows perfectly, okay? So don't take this and think every time you find the word knowledge in the Bible, you look up what your note is of what I said knowledge is, and every time it says wisdom, it's this. No, the Bible, the biblical authors, just like us, they use words in different ways. And sometimes they mean one thing with a word, and sometimes they mean something slightly different with a word. Uh, So this isn't a rigid category of what the biblical word means every time. That would be pretty uh, impossible to do. This, though, is is kind of some categories, a paradigm to help you make sense of, in general, what is the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. And what I'd say is that knowledge is data. Knowledge is the accumulation of information about the world. It's all these data points. And wisdom is the proper understanding that makes sense of all that data the thing that connects it all to give it all significance. Wisdom is the ability to take what could be random information and yet tie it all together so that it can be understood. Think of it uh, as if I'd given you a riddle that you had to figure out, and uh, as you're trying to solve the riddle, I gave you some hints. These hints and the information in the riddle, that's knowledge. It's information, it's data. And indeed, 
as you get more hints, as you get more knowledge, more points of data, it's going to be easier to find out something that connects all of it. But on the other hand, you could never get enough hints that's going to do the abstract thinking of how do I encapsulate all this information to solve the riddle. And so that's life. Basically, what we can see here in Job is that man is very skilled at accumulating knowledge. We have all kinds of information. We've got all kinds of data about how the world works. And indeed, we'll probably keep increasing in that knowledge for as long as man lives. But you can never accumulate enough knowledge to provide wisdom, to provide the proper understanding that makes sense of all the data, that connects it all together, that says this is here and this is there and that follows that and that's why that comes from that. That'll never be found with human wisdom, with science. No, it can't be. And indeed, all of human history is full of religions and philosophies that are attempts at wisdom. That's what they all are. They're attempts to take the world as we know it and give some kind of cosmic understanding that will explain it all and by that tell us how we ought to live our lives. And in the process of man trying to figure out wisdom on their own, of philosophers and prophets, they've come up with basically everything to explain the world. Um, One of the earliest philosophers, he said, this is the basic wisdom to understand the world. Uh, The basic understanding is this, is that everything is always changing. But then the guy right after him, he said, no, 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 the basic foundation of life is that change is an illusion and everything's always stayed the same. Some people say that there are an infinite number of gods. Other people say there's one God. Some people say God is everything. Some people say God does not exist at all. Some say that there are no limits to man's knowledge. If we just keep seeking through science and other means, we will understand other, everything. There are others who say uh, man doesn't know anything at all. And indeed, in man's attempts to figure out some kind of system that makes sense of everything, well, they've thought of everything, every possible guess, such that uh, Cicero said, there's nothing so stupid as some philosopher hasn't said it. They've made every guess. They've made every attempt. They contradict each other every next generation. And kind of the great problem with all this is people can feel, you know, I guess pretty good about their philosophy, feel pretty good about their religion. But what the thing that they're missing that they could never get is confirmation. You know, Job's friends, they felt pretty good about their understanding of the world until Job came along and lost everything. Then threw their understanding into a tailspin. That's the problem with all these philosophies and religions, these uh, attempts to make sense of everything, is who will confirm that it's right? We are very far from omniscient. Our knowledge is very small. You know, what are the chances? That with our small amount of information, with all the information there is, that we would somehow on our own come up with the understanding that makes sense of all of it. And even if I did, how do I know I didn't make some error and mess up? You don't. That's the thing with human wisdom. They have no way to confirm that they actually know anything, that they're close to the truth. No one can tell them because we're all ignorant, we're all foolish, we're all just guessing. 
So Job says, no one knows where wisdom is. No one has wisdom. Here in my great search to understand something about how this world operates, I've come up with nothing. But though he doesn't know where wisdom is to be found, Job does know the person who does know the place. Verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Verses 23 to 28, you can write that as the keeper of wisdom. So verses 1 to 11 was the power of man, 12 to 22, the mystery of wisdom, and now 23 to 28, the keeper of wisdom. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks at the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God knows what wisdom is. Because he looks at the whole world and he sees everything. He sees every data point. He has all information and all knowledge. And so doing, he sees the picture that makes sense of it all. And he has perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge. Indeed, not only does he see and know everything and therefore understand everything, but indeed, he's the one who by wisdom created the world. Verse 24, or verse 25, when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, Yes, it's the one who decided how hard the wind would blow. The one who figured out how much water should go in the ocean. Verse 26, the one who calls down the rain and has made a way for lightning to exist. The God who created all of that with his infinite wisdom, he is the one person who knows where wisdom is to be found. Verse 27, he saw it, he declared it, he established it and searched it out. Man does not know wisdom, but God does. And if there is any hope of man ever knowing wisdom, ever understanding how the world works and how they are to operate in it, it is only if God will tell them. He is the only one who knows. He is the only one who has all the information and is absolutely certain about everything in the world. We will forever be blind and lost, but God tell us this is how things are. And now we come to verse 28, which all of the emphasis falls on. Verses 1 to 27, it all had the same meter of a poem. And then verse 28, the meter's thrown off. Why all to to drive all of our attention here at this verse, verse 28. And indeed, remember, I'm claiming that the book of Job is the first book of the Bible that was ever written. God's first written revelation to man that would endure throughout time. And within this book, the first time that God ever addresses man directly is here in verse 28. So this is God's first written direct address to humanity. And what is the message that God says? It's this. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That is God's instruction about how to find wisdom, is that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You are no doubt uh, familiar with a variation of this verse. Uh, you guys are probably more familiar with the versions in Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so you can see among our three variations of this, uh, in all three, the second uh, stanza, the second line, is completely different each time. But the first line is pretty similar, though not completely similar. And the biggest distinction 
is that here in Job, verse 28, it leaves out the word beginning, which is there included in Proverbs in both times, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom rather than just the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. I think there, Solomon, he is giving his inspired interpretation of Job 28.28. He is saying that uh, what it means when Job says the fear of the Lord is wisdom is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so you can see even there, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, he's largely uh, founding his book, Proverbs, on this line from Job, that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And what this phrase means, well, it's, it's what we've basically discussed thus far. That the fear of the Lord is wisdom means that man does not know what wisdom is. We cannot find it. And the only way that we can ever find it is by submitting to the Lord, humbling ourselves before him and saying, if I am to know wisdom, you must tell me. And indeed, too, this also raises the question of what does it mean by the fear of the Lord? It's a phrase that's used a lot in in Scripture, and it can be hard to understand for a number of reasons. But I think this verse, indeed the book of Job, it also is really helpful in helping us understand what that means, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the emotion that naturally comes when you truly recognize that God can do whatever he wants to you. That he is the complete, sovereign, almighty God who created the world and can destroy it as well. That he's the God who has given you everything you've ever loved and enjoyed, and yet he also has the complete ability and authority and prerogative to take it away whenever he would like. That this God operates according to his own purposes, and he does act. And that means that many times in history, he has taken away that which is most precious to people. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is the emotion that comes when you recognize that God could take away from you your child at any time, that he could cause you to be a paraplegic, that he could and one day will kill you, and you can do nothing to stay his hand. You can do nothing to question him. He can do whatever he wants, and you are completely, absolutely, perfectly vulnerable before him. Oh, and I did not mention, this is the very God whom you have rebelled against your whole life. The emotion that is felt there, that is the fear of the Lord. Yes, eventually it ends in peace and joy, but it begins very unpleasantly. I am so small before this God. And all I've ever done is tried to provoke him and take his spot. And he can do whatever he wants to me. And I have no contract I can appeal to that, no, God, I did good things. Remember, you have to be good to me? Nope, he signed no contract. He's God and he does what he wants and no one can stay his hand. And throughout the book of Job, we have seen and that Job is the only one who really fears the Lord in this way. Job's wife, she didn't fear the Lord. Job, uh, Job's wife saw God as her genie. When he gave her good things, she did good things in return. But when he cursed her, she cursed him. She had a contract with God. She didn't fear him. She domesticated him. 
Job's friends, they reveal that they have the exact same understanding of God. That's their, uh, their assumption as they talk to, to Job, is that we have this uh, agreement with God. He only does bad things to us when we do bad things. And when we do good things, he does good to us. Again, they, they uh, presume that when they were born, God gave them this contract that I can only do a bad thing to you if you deserve it. No, no contract, no agreement exists. God has not come down to us and made him our equal. He is the Lord. He can do whatever he wants. And Job, the first thing that was said about him was that he was some person who truly feared the Lord. And he truly turned away from evil. And through all of his suffering, and indeed through all of his questions and his complaints, his fear of the Lord has remained intact. He still recognizes that God is God. And at this point in the narrative, Job still does not have wisdom. But what he says here in verse 28 is that while he does not have wisdom right now, he knows that the only way he'll ever have it is by fearing the Lord. That that's the foundation. If he has any hope of ever understanding why God does the things he does, it'll be because God tells him. And indeed, that will be what happens in the rest of the book of Job. Job will finish up his speech in verse 31, and then Elihu will come. And though he doesn't have perfect wisdom, he says many things that are true wisdom. And through his word, Job does indeed begin to build on that foundation of the fear of the Lord, and he begins to accumulate true wisdom. He begins to get some true answers. And of course, he's finally given wisdom when God himself comes down in, verse thir- in chapter 38 and speaks to him. And though God does not tell Job, this is the reason we've done all this stuff, what he tells Job is who he is. Who he is as the God of the universe. And he gives Job the wisdom he needs. And through that, the friends, the friends hear what Elihu says. The friends hear what God says. But there's no record that they increase in wisdom. Why? Because they lack the fear of the Lord. Job, in the end, is the only one who actually learns who actually begins to understand because he's the only one who fears the Lord. And so indeed, that's the question for all of us. Do you fear the Lord? Job's wife, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They're all very intelligent people. And from what we can tell, they're all religious people. And yet they did not truly fear the Lord. Happens all the time that people come to church and say they're Christians and are nice people, but they don't fear the Lord. They see God as their genie, and they've made up an agreement with God where they'll go to church and be nice and uh, tell people that they believe in Jesus, and in return, God will give them what they want. But as we've seen, that is not the fear of the Lord. The question to ask yourself to figure out if you fear the Lord is, would you do what Job has done? If God took away all the good things from your life, would you still say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or would you begin looking in the drawers of your mind, trying to find that contract which says God could never take those things away from you?
It is only by fearing Him that you'll ever understand. Uh, This idea, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. It's been expressed throughout church history, uh, often with this phrase, that it is faith seeking understanding. Augustine was the first one to say it, and it was uh, kept as uh, a slogan, a summary for many centuries. I like how Anselm put it in about the 11th century. He said, I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. For I believe this also, that unless I believe, I shall never understand. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot switch it around. You cannot make wisdom the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Job asks many questions of God. He's ultimately, though he does sin, he's ultimately okay in asking his questions because he asks those questions out of faith, out of a fear of the Lord. But if you ask questions of God, if you seek to understand and explore, not out of faith that the Lord is in control and he will give me wisdom, no, but rather uh, an exercise of your own abilities, that you will figure out on your own what wisdom is, and then once you do that, then you will see that God is worthy of being feared and believed, uh, and then you will do so. If that's your approach, you will never understand and you will never believe. The only way to ever understand is if you believe first, if you fear the Lord first. And that belief, that fear, it can be very small. But that is the basic impulse of a Christian. That I am nothing, I know nothing, and if I'm ever to know anything or have anything, it is because God must give it to me. And indeed, uh, let's step back a second. I want to give an overview then. Okay, how does a person become wise? Again, they start by saying, I don't know. I don't know anything, and I'm hopeless to ever understand anything. And the only way that I will ever know anything or ever understand is if God would tell me. And at this point, uh, that faith can be rather general. It could be small. You don't have to know all the particulars about who God is. You can find that out later. All it needs to be is, Whoever controls all this, whoever made all this, whatever that is, if I'm to know anything, I need him to tell me. And once you do that, once you have that humility, that fear of your creator, then your ears will be perked to see if he has spoken. And once you truly fear him, once you truly believe that he is there to speak to you, you will then be able to see that God has indeed spoken to us. He's spoken to us primarily here in his word. This is his revelation. This is God's wisdom being told to us. This is the place of wisdom, the place of understanding. You cannot say that you fear the Lord and not love scripture. Indeed, Job 28, in many ways, it's the ultimate declaration of the value of scripture, that in a world of darkness and ignorance, It is God's speech to us, the speech from the one person who understands and knows. And so how precious is God's word then? And unlike every other uh, philosophy and religion in world history, we don't have to wonder, oh, is it true though? How do I know it's true? You know it's true because God himself, who knows everything, he put his stamp of approval on it and said, this is the truth, I know. I'm the one person who does, and trust me, this is 
This is the way things are. This is true wisdom. This is indeed truth. He has spoken to us in His Word. He's spoken to us in one other way. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. As Remember, go to 1 Corinthians 1. But then remember over in Hebrews chapter 1 that we are told that there is a greater revelation, there is a greater way that God has spoken to us in these present times, and that is through His Son. Jesus Christ, He is the wisdom of God. He is the incarnation of the mind of God. And He is the ultimate way in which wisdom is brought to us ignorant men. And of course, this is Palm Sunday, the day that remembers when long ago, uh, the people of Jerusalem began by accepting their king, by worshiping him, but it was a false dawn. Later, they would crucify the king of glory, and in that way, give the utmost evidence for all time that man is completely ignorant, that God can show up right in front of their face, and they don't know it's him. Instead, they kill him. Go ahead, though, and look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is basically a, a New Testament encapsulation of all that we've learned in the book of Job about wisdom and foolishness and how God has given us this wisdom through His Son and the gospel of Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. By the way, verse 19, this is a, uh, a quote from Job 5. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know who's wise? You know who's a scribe, a debater? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're the wise men of this world. But they didn't know. They didn't truly have wisdom. God made them foolish. He showed that they understand nothing. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. On their own, they could not figure out God and how He operates. It therefore pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know who's the one type of person who can reject the wisdom of the world to accept the foolishness of God? A person who has already said, I don't know anything. I have no wisdom. If I'm ever going to know, it's because God's going to tell me. Once you're at that position, then it doesn't matter what God says to you. You're going to believe it. It doesn't matter how foolish it seems. You've already said, I am terrible at detecting wisdom and foolishness. All I need is for God to speak to me. Only the people who fear the Lord, who believe Him, can accept the folly of God, the message of the cross. Verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The ultimate demonstration of the wisdom of God in human history, the death of the Son of God on the cross. And there God, uh, outside of any other act, speaks the utmost of who He is and how He operates, how you can be saved from uh, eternal misery, that He is a God who is indeed just, who punishes sin, who by no means clears the guilty, but also 
loves to the utmost. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yep, because the, the wisdom and strength of men is null, easy to beat. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is the common assumption of our world, is that the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are uh, to know the truth. So they tell us all the time, oh, well, don't argue with these people. They have a PhD. Oh, don't argue with this guy. He has an IQ of 190. There's no way that uh, he could be wrong when you have a much lower IQ. No, what Scripture teaches us is that intelligence is not the road to wisdom. Morality is the road to wisdom. Humility, fear, belief is the road to wisdom. No, being intelligent uh, isn't a path to to wisdom. For as Socrates, one of the earliest philosophers, said, He said that intelligence doesn't help you to wisdom because as you get better at putting the pieces together, you also get better at deceiving yourself. You get better at vindicating your faults and your lusts. So no, intelligence doesn't bring you the truth. Only humility, only fear of the Lord. And who can summon up humility? Who can give themselves the fear of the Lord? No one on their own. It is only by God's gift. To the ones that God chooses, he gives them the fear of the Lord. He gives them belief and faith and humility that then allows them to receive his revelation, which seems foolishness to the world. And God purposely made it look so foolish and dumb so that the whole world would scoff and say, that's definitely not wisdom, when all along they know nothing. So that ultimately, all the debaters and wise men of the world will be shamed that they've known nothing. Verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Let us remember that the only source of wisdom is God's Word and God's Son. And indeed, if you love wisdom, then you will love Christ Jesus who came into this world, who revealed God to us, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead. He is the wisdom of God. And if we would follow Him, fear Him, humble ourselves before Him, He will indeed give us eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, we know nothing. Please help us understand that more and more just how little we know, how finite and small we are. Not only how ignorant we are, but also how our sin purposely tries to make us even dumber. It leads us away from the truth. Please help us recognize that, Lord. Please help us all tremble at your word. Bow before the truth of Scripture, the truth revealed in your Son, and indeed accept him with open arms. That man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and yet became that for our sake to atone for all those sins we've done which indeed deserve your punishment. Indeed, help us rejoice that now we do know. Now we have wisdom. We have wisdom indeed We know, we love, we are in, we are the bride of him who is your wisdom incarnate. 
Please give us joy in that. In Jesus' name, amen.